Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. Did you know we now have one of the most highly educated female workforces in labour market history? Every time I hear a FW member say they're thinking about more study, I despair, not because study is ever a bad idea, but because the evidence suggests it doesn't necessarily mean a better job or pay. My guest today has dedicated her life to advancing gender equality. And it should be said, Professor Ray Cooper AO has also done plenty of study. Professor Cooper is the leading academic in finding ways to dismantle anti-women culture and practices in the workplace. She is currently Professor of Gender, Work and Employment Relations at the University of Sydney Business School, among a few other roles. I wanted to know whether she advises women to take on even more study. Professor Ray Cooper, thank you for joining us on the Future Women Leadership Series. When did you know that you wanted to be an academic? A good question. I don't think I ever did. To be honest, I just sort of ended up there. I was the first person in my family actually to go to university. My mum ended up graduating after I did. So it wasn't a kind of a thing that, you know, my working class family did as an aspiration. And I actually dropped out and bombed spectacularly in my first year of university. Um, Too many parties? No comment. (laughs) No, I was studying the wrong thing. And, you know, with the greatest of respect to philosophers, I was studying, I was doing a philosophy major and I just didn't understand it. So the first class was, does a hamburger have a mind? And I was, no. And then we got up to about week eight. and we were still on. We were still on, does a, I don't know, a table have a mind? And I was still, no. (laughs) And it was just the wrong thing for my poor little brain to study. So I left and came back. Um, and look, then in my wildest dreams, I never would have thought I would end up being a professor at a, you know, research intensive, fantastic university like the University of Sydney. But I, you know, I did, I found my thing, you know, I did my um, major in industrial relations in the end, which I absolutely loved. And I had these amazing professors who taught me. Then I did an honours degree, did really well, applied for a PhD scholarship, got it, finished my PhD, got a job. You know, it sounds kind of easy, but it, I just, things just fell in place me and then all of a sudden I was an academic. So I've kind of gotten there by being there, if that makes any sense. I mean, it was a hard grind and a lot of work to, to get there, a lot of training. What did your family think? <laughs> was she just going to get a job? Like, what is she still doing <laughs> so at uni? My, and she's my lovely dad, who is, you know, dearly departed now, he loved that I was, you know, a bit academic and a bit clever, but he never, I don't think he actually quite understood what it was that I did. So he would still, you know, I'd come, come home when he was alive and he'd say, hey, going, darling, how's the study? So he still thought I was studying, even though I was, uh, you know, quite a senior, a senior researcher in um, the field that I was in. And he once, I heard him once after he'd had a couple of beers describing to one of his mates that, you know how Bob Hawke was a Rhodes Scholar? Uh, wow. Uh, yeah. 
she's a bit like that, but I wasn't a Rhodes Scholar. I was nowhere near a Rhodes Scholar. But, you know, it was sort of bragging rights for my dad. But I wasn't, and I'm not 100% convinced he totally understood what, he, what I was doing, but very, very proud of him. I think most parents don't understand what their kids really no, do. No, I think it's pretty normal. So how would you describe your own leadership skills? I think it sort of depends on the context in some ways. And there's also the thing that you try to be and then the thing that you are. I think I try to be inclusive. I try to be a joiner up. I try to be a builder. I try to be someone who's, you know, a listener and inclusive, you know, and evidence-driven. But I'm also really headstrong and I'm also very, very uh, attracted to new things. So I can be a bit full on. (laughs) So I don't know if full on is a leadership style. (laughs) If it is, that's me. But yeah, I try to do those things. And I've tried, you know, some of that you learn from watching amazing leaders and some of it you watch through being exposed to people who aren't the best. You know, so I think I've learned how to chair meetings and I think I chair meetings pretty well by watching in really different contexts, the very poor chairing of meetings. I'm a collector and I'm a putter together of people and a and, and a bit of a builder, I think, across different parts of the world that I'm working in. So what are you not so good at? Uh, <laughs> Well, I'm trying to think about what people who work with me would say. It's hard, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And that's something that we should all reflect on. I think I go a bit too fast and I get on a pathway of this is the way that it should be and this is the obvious thing that we should be doing or this is the the next thing that we're going to do. And often, you know, it works out that way. Sometimes it's the wrong call. So I think trying to listen a bit better is something that I could I could do a bit better. I read somewhere that Anne Summers' Damned Whores and God's Police was influential in your early career. And, you know, I, I think it's there's barely a week goes by where it's not something that I, I think about because you see, you still see examples of that in daily life. For the listener who doesn't know this work, can you tell us a, a bit about what Dr. Summers was talking about? Yeah. Well, for a start, I personally admire Anne enormously. At one level, because she's a country girl like me, you know, and she sort of, uh, you know, is hyper-intelligent and just such an amazing writer. But Damned Whores and God's Police is really about the history of Australia and the way in which women have been posed as either one or the other. So they're either dreadful, rabble-rousing, amoral convicts, or they're the the fixers and the, the moral police who fix society and are responsible for the appropriate upbringing of children and the the spreading of good values and whatnot. And the the sort of contradiction between those things is both not quite borne out in history. You know, that's not that's not a real sort of dichotomy of what women are. But yeah, I think it's an interesting, challenging kind of way that women have been treated. So her argument is that women have been treated as others all the way through Australian history. And, you know, she does quite some interesting scholarship on Aboriginal women as well and the ways in which they have been completely disenfranchised and subject to violence you know, through the colonial project. Yeah, I guess I also absolutely just admire Anne Summers as a, as a human being and a soldier. Do you think there are still women in workplaces all over Australia today that are still identified broadly in those terms? So we're still expected to be morally uh, upright uh, and better human beings. We still haven't managed to break down that old concept. Yeah, so I, I think there is a there's a really harsh expectation put on women to be better than men, in a way. And I think it's really interesting, even if we look at things around, for example, you know, sort of women's solidarity with each other. There's often much more expectation put on women that women will support other women and, and make, 
you know, clear the way for women and make things better for women. I think a lot of women actually take that very seriously and do that. But in a way, because women are not the powerful people in workplaces or typically not in politics or in, you know, other sort of sport or whatever context we're looking at, it's kind of putting the responsibility for, you know, being the, being the good person onto women all the time. And there's this sort of double standard of if you're a tough woman and you're a driven woman, then you're not a good woman. Um, so I think that's a sort of a, a challenge and, you know, sort of a, an identity issue that we struggle with constantly about women who are in public life or women who are in, in leadership roles is sort of looking at them as what they are as women and what they should be. You make an excellent point. I mean, how many times do you just think of, have I heard that the expectation and I've stood in rooms where we've all told each other to make sure we bring another woman with us. That is an extra piece of work to do yeah. in your day yeah. when in many cases you've got a fair amount of other things to do as well. Yeah, completely. And a lot of women take it very, very seriously. Yeah. And the, I've been pretty lucky that I've had more senior women than me actually really take the project of pulling other women up after them as you know, a critical part of their professional life. But it, it's extra work and it's not necessarily a demand that we put on men. And if men undertake that behaviour, they're often seen as being really good blokes, you know, uh, whereas oh. for women it's part of the job. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they're, they're incredible if they do that. Let's talk a little bit about your research and what you're seeing in the workplace at the moment for young women. Well, you know, I think we've been through an interesting couple of years, haven't we? Quite apart from all the COVID impact and that has more profoundly impacted women, particularly young women, than it has anyone else in the labour force. But we've seen this sort of, I think, I think it's something of a generational change actually, where we're seeing young women roar at the moment and really starting to, um, you know, find a voice in a way that previous generations, including my own, haven't quite had the same voice. I think, um, you know, this generation of women, I don't know what it is about them, but I find them quite inspiring, actually. Sometimes older feminists will look back on on the younger generation and think, oh, God, they should be more like us. But I actually think that lots of the older feminists should be more like the young ones, you know, who just don't take the crap, want to do a whole range of interesting things in their life, want to, you know, have family life, have great careers, don't see a contradiction between those two things. And that's really, it actually sounds not like a massive thing, but that's actually a pretty big challenge to say, I, I actually want to, you know, have kids and a family and to study and to do all of those things all at once. Whereas I think earlier generations maybe have taken a slightly different approach and thought about, you know, you can have it all, but not all at once. I think it's a very interesting time to be looking at what's going on in the world of work and what's going on in, you know, attitudes towards work and towards gender equality. I think things are actually starting to change a little bit. What are the implications of that? Because that kind of change is going to be confronting for their managers and their organisations. Yeah, but ultimately it's going to be good for managers and organisations. I mean, we have in Australia the most highly educated prime age female labour force in the world. I mean, that is such an absolute goldmine. You know, quite apart from the fact that this generation of women have absolutely invested in themselves, have undertaken the study, have done the further study, you know, are, are very ambitious for careers, but they also want to do that with having family life as well. So it's a generational change that we're watching before us of the young women who are sort of coming of age now and in their 20s. I think it's very interesting, very interesting time. And what are you seeing in terms of relationships? Because if the whole world has changed in terms of having a family, and I'm not saying that there isn't still a pretty strong mainstream Australian woman out there who is going to marry you know, their first boyfriend and have three kids and 
wonder about a divorce at some point. It may or may not go through with it, right? But the possibilities are much greater today. And so they're not as hemmed in by some conservative values and family expectations. They they have a lot more choice yeah, around they how do. they yeah. choose to form families and at what point in their life that they do that. Yeah. And I think... So we had, you know, they're so educated and they're so motivated around work. I mean, they I've got... They know all this. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I, look, I have the enormous pleasure of actually teaching young young women and young men uh, at university every week of the year. And it is, it's an interesting thing to watch. So th- they don't necessarily make the assumption that they're going to step out, you know, when they have young families in the way that previous generations did. They have this approach, which is that they need to be able to work out a way to, to manage it all together. So I think that's a fundamental challenge, both to the way that you know, the workplace works in terms of how we value young women and how we value that that absolute drive that they have, but also how we make it possible for young men and young women to have, you know, rewarding family lives and spend time with their kids and not be at work the entire time. I think ultimately it's a pretty interesting challenge, both for business, for government policy, but I think it's also pretty a pretty big challenge for families as well, trying to break down some of those gender norms. And it, to me, it just doesn't make sense when I look at these bright young things who I teach in my university classes, you know, and it's almost a generation where women have been more highly educated through higher ed. It makes no sense that, you know, that uh, wealth of knowledge and that investment that they've made in themselves steps out of the labour market and we don't capitalise on it. It's sort of one of the biggest assets we've got, actually. So I actually genuinely think we're at a turning point here with this very highly educated, feminised workforce and what they're going to do, you know, more broadly in their lives and, and actually what they're going to put up with in a way that perhaps previous and older generations sort of accepted as normal and natural, that they would do their uni, step out and have the kids, maybe come back eventually, maybe not, maybe, you know, come back part-time. There's just not the same assumptions, I don't think, anymore. All right, so I'm managing a team it's gender equal. What do I need to think about when I'm leading a group of young people? Well, I think it's about trying to understand what dynamics you've got going on. Okay, so breaking down the norms about work and and about who the person is who's the top performer and what their uh, capability is and what their capacity to progress is. I think we often have assumed that that's blokes who are are the ones who've got drive and got the capacity to sort of, um, you know, score the goals at work. But it's more and more young women have got that same drive. They've got the same well, the high levels of education. They've got a significant drive. So I think it's thinking through how do we how do we make it possible that the investment that these young people have made in themselves, that we don't lose it. So if you've got very highly educated, very intelligent young women working for you, that you don't lose them after you've invested in them until they're 30 and they step out and don't come back. That you look at the dynamics that are going on between your young men and young women in the workplace and make yourself really sure that you are rewarding on performance, uh, that you're enabling everyone to perform at a certain level and that the sort of tests and judgments you make about people are not based on, you know, your stereotypes about what what's appropriate for either gender to be doing. To sort of, yeah, to m- make it easier in a way, I think, than it has been. Because it is a tough, it's a tough workplace for, for young women and it's a very tough workplace for parents. And because young women still, you know, mothers still take the majority of that burden of, childcare. Um, it's trying as a leader to 
to try to smooth the way for the very talented people you've got in your organisation. So that might be about not assuming that women are going to, you know, when they have young babies, want to step entirely out of the labour force. It might also mean not assuming that young men, when they have tiny babies, don't want to spend time with their children, you know, that they don't assume that they want to work ridiculous hours all of the time. You know, try to design that people have genuine choices to make about where they work, when they work, you know, and how they combine that with the rest of their lives. Because I think this generation's attitudes are actually a little bit different. Do you see any red flags around young men at the moment? In? In the sense that the world's shifted underneath their feet. Yeah. And they aren't the most educated, they're not the high performers and they're not guaranteed a clear run and they're not guaranteed that they can marry a person who'll do their cooking and cleaning Yeah, and stay at home look after the kids. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think it's a period of realignment and in some respects, if you actually look at some of the people who are pretty disadvantaged in the labour force, it is actually lower income men. For some uh, cohorts of young men in particular, the labour market at the moment can be a pretty dangerous place, you know, particularly for those people who, um, you know, are high school or lower level high school educated, you know, unless they're in particular trades that are like quite, you know, well paid and, you know, have a bit of labour market power. There are some of those, you know, young working class men who are being left behind actually. So there is, there's a bit of rebalancing going on in, in the labour market. And I think like you do see from time to time a little bit of slightly, I don't want to say backlash uh, against sort of women moving into more senior roles or into more professional roles. But I think I think there's a little bit of an undercurrent there. And with all of these things, there's always a little bit of, little tiny kernel of truth there, that there are some men um, who are a little left behind and are, feel a bit affronted by women moving into the professional classes. So I think... Yeah, I think that's a that's a big sort of societal conversation we've got to have. But frankly, if young women are investing in themselves, going through higher education, you know, wanting to step into the labour market and trying to do that at the same time as also really having strong interests in having families and, you know, happy lives, well, I think we've also got to, got to sort of work with that. So I think, yeah, I think there are some interesting generational changes going on and genders, gender is absolutely part of that. So for all the women that are in their mid-career they're still, in my experience, still struggling with a bunch of things. And it looks a bit like they're the smart one in the room or the team. They're the one who takes on more and more responsibility. They're the one that gets the call up. Oh, there's a late piece of work that needs doing. Can you come in and do it? Yep, no problem. They're the ones really under strain because it's also at the time when they're just starting to have children or have got young children these are the women that are most under pressure in the workplace right now and they don't feel particularly privileged. Um, and they are worried about whether they take the new job or they don't take the new job. They've got, you know, lots of challenges inside their um, organisation. Do they go and do more study? Because when I'm mentoring them, it often comes up like, think I might need to do more study mm. to break whatever the spell is that's going on. Mm. What do you say to that? To do more study to get ahead, you mean? Yeah, or to, to get yeah, ahead, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, to get around the problem. You, you know, in, the, in my day it was I might just go and have a baby. Mm. You know, it's just a nice out. I don't mm. upset anyone. I'm yeah. pregnant. Goodbye. Mm. Mm. Um, but it feels to me like study is this thing that a lot of young women are now looking to as an answer. So they go and do more. 
I yeah, got my MBA. Yeah. Go and get my MBA. Mm-mm-mm. Well, it's a it's a thing that a lot of young professional women absolutely are doing, and one of the reasons why we have the most highly educated prime age female labour force in the OECD, which is something to be really proud of. I mean, um, it is extraordinary and it's yeah. exciting, right? Yeah, it's phenomenal. And we, like, as someone who works in the higher education sector, that some of these young women are just incredibly bright, incredibly motivated. Um, you know, and for older women like me, um, a little bit terrifying, yes. you know. like I've got a few but, of those. Yeah, amazing generation of young women coming through. But the problem is, uh, with all of that investment, you have to be making sure you're getting a return for it. I'm not convinced that young women are. So um, they've beaten down the doors of higher education, you know, from the sort of early 90s until now to now be the majority in higher education. And yet they go out into a labour market where there's still a very significant gender pay gap. I mean, we often talk about, oh, you know, the gender pay gap's now, you know, 15% or whatever it is right at the minute. But that's full-time earners and full-time earners, and that doesn't include bonuses and, you know, all of the things that are sort of off the books. That is a very significant gap when we have a more educated female labour force than we have the male labour force. So there's still some very significant write-downs that women get that men don't get. So doing study, I'd be the last person in the world to say don't do more study because that's all I ever do. I am asking you a hard question. Yeah. But (laughs) you've got to think about what the return is. Is that the answer to the problem that you're facing? So getting more credentialed and more and more credentialed as a woman, is is that the thing that's going to get you better promoted, um, have your skills more recognised in your organisation? Sometimes the answer to that is yes, it will. Um, sometimes that's not the problem. The problem's not you. The problem is that the nature of the organisation and the, the things that they recognise, the things that they value in terms of, you know, who you are, what what the nature of your performance is, what your style is. And, and from your ac- academic perspective then, you know, what is the quality of micro-credentials now? Are you seeing a trend towards, well, I don't need a full degree. I can go and study governance or risk or, yeah. um, you know, a couple of modules. Are you seeing a trend towards that? And, yeah, and yeah. is that a better way of thinking about just that short, you know, sharp upskill that takes me to the next Yeah, level? This, this, I mean, that certainly has been the trend. I mean, the, uh, higher education has typically been, you know, you buy the big blocks of a degree and there's typically not been a lot of flexibility um, to be able to do things differently. But, you know, I think that sort of degree only route to, you know, getting skills and quals, I think that's that's being broken actually. So most of even the, you know, the really prestigious institutions in Australia and internationally in the in higher education sector are also moving to, to the micro-credential route and, you know, sort of makes sense, doesn't it? You know, that people, particularly when they're very busy, that they can have building blocks that go toward making up you know, building the skills that they need and capabilities that they need, um, or perhaps later being able to block them together into a, a qualification. So I think it's, I mean, it's a challenging time in, in education and higher education, and not just around the gender stuff, actually, around, you know, how, how do people see education as a way to build careers and when education happens, rather than happening before they go and get a job or whether it happens whilst they're working. And apologies in advance for this question because it's a tricky one. Are you seeing any trends in terms of the, the gender split between taking those blocks of education. In other words, what I'm leading to is, is it possible men are taking the shortcuts and women are still doing the longer degrees? That's a good question. <laughs> That's a very good question. I don't know the answer to that, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, I teach um, I teach on an MBA, pretty prestigious MBA, uh, and we make a, a pretty big effort to make the classrooms 50-50. I actually, that's a really good question that I don't know the answer to. Yeah, as um, I said, I should apologise. Yeah. <laughs> um, what do you think drove Australian women to be the most educated 
workforce we've ever seen? Well, Australia, we invest a lot in education in Australia as, as a rule, you know, um, compared to many other economies. You know, I think we, we did a pretty significant job of opening up higher education in the late 80s, early 1990s. I mean, that also came along with fees being introduced. But, you know, the, and the Australian higher education sector is a, you know, really high-performing sector compared to the internationals. And it's something that, look, I think that it, it's part of the sort of project that I think, um, you know, young women have seen as being part of the life course, you know, self-improvement program, if you like, that it's sort of a natural progression that attaining those quals is really important to getting a job and getting a good job and sort of jumping up the sort of social economic ladder, so to speak. So it certainly has been one of the biggest changes we've seen in the last generation is the participation of women in education and and in higher education. And I can regularly teach um, my classes and I can regularly have, you know, 80% of the class to be women now. So it's a, and that's, that's a big change over the past sort of 25 years. Let's talk about flexibility. What are you saying? Where do we need to go? So we have a fair bit of flexibility in the labour market. Some of it, you know, we try to, in our research, differentiate between good flexibility and bad flexibility. You know, so bad flexibility being sort of low end, you know, per hour flexibility where you don't tend to have that capacity to progress, you know, it tends to be per hour tends to not be career pathed, tends to be often people will work below their qualification levels. You also see good flex, I suppose, which is where people work in flexible jobs that are sort of also career path jobs and where they can progress along the path to, you know, high paid work and, you know, getting a payback for the investment they've made in their education. So I guess, you know, flexibility is always going to be in demand because it's really hard to have a, you know, family life and to look after kids and, you know, to have, you know, really long hours working parents. You know, society kind of works by not just people working, but people not working and working at home or doing unpaid work at home. Yeah, flexible work is really a critical part of particularly women's working experience. I think the the question is about whether we, you know, whether it's good flex, uh, whether it's bad flex. And I I would see bad flex as really being low end, you know, lower skilled, lower paid uh, work and looking at higher paid career progression flexibility is being really important. And I think that's critical to building gender equality in the labour market. One of the things that I see a lot as part of the FW Jobs Academy is that there are enormous number of women in this country who would like two or three days a week work. And to your point, they've got degrees. And in some cases, they've got a second, you know, they've got their master's, but they've had three children. And this is very anecdotal, but three children seems to be the magic number where they've taken long periods of time out of the workplace. They don't want to do what they did before they had children. They want a different life. Mm. But they do not have the luxury of five days work. They can only do two days. There are still three kids at home they're looking after. And it seems to me that a lot of organisations talk a great game on flexibility, Mm. but it's not really there. Yeah. Is that what you see? Yeah, I think, look, I hope it's changing, but it is really hard to, to work in, in good, flexible jobs. And it is very hard to get, you know, jobs that are, aren't full-time long hours jobs that are also career path jobs. I think that's starting to turn around a little bit and the tighter the labour market gets, I think the more pressure is on employers to do that. But often there is this sort of dreadful choice for particularly mothers because mothers take the lion's share of the, the care of kids when they're really little between, a you know, a good job and being able to look after the kids. And it's also, you know, looking at the, you know, quite significant costs that 
are associated with childcare. So before kids go to school, that's, um, look, I know from even my own family's experience, you know, having two kids in childcare on a full-time basis is pretty tricky to to manage on on two wages. And you sort of look around feeling exhausted, looking at your kids in childcare who've got colds and been pulled out of care very regularly, and you sort of wonder what on earth you're doing. So there, there is a sort of crunch point where these highly educated women are going, how do I kind of make this work? Ray Cooper, I feel extremely optimistic, though, that that generation that you're educating and that we talked about off the top of this podcast have got this, mm. and that by the time, you know, you and I are talking about this stuff in 10, well, when you and I are talking about this in 10 years' time, it's going to be solved because the smart young women coming up behind have got it under control. Thank you very much for joining me today. That's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall. 